now that we have come to the end of this course, we will have to have a look at how we can use the things we have heard or experienced in our daily life. We cannot separate meditation, we cannot separate practice in this hall from practice in everyday life. Unless the two are joined together, we will find that first of all, it is difficult for us to make progress, and secondly, we will feel torn, as if we don't know where we belong. It has to be an integrated whole. To be holy means to be whole. And so we can definitely use all that we have done here and we'll have a look at that how. First of all, we'll have to have a clear direction. What do we want in this life? And sometimes it helps to take pencil and paper and write it down. And then cross off those that after a while don't seem suitable anymore. Make a list. What do I really want in this life? And after having made a list, check it after a few days and see if you still feel the same way. And again, and again. The list changes. And maybe one day there's nothing left on that list except Nibbana. And if that's the case, well, you're quite clear on what you want. Until that's the last thing that's left, things will change. And there will be a multitude of things. Because life consists of a multitude of possibilities. But in the end, it all comes and boils down to one thing. Maybe in the beginning, it's just going to say, I want some peace. Or it's going to say, I want some happiness. Or it's going to say, I want more discipline. Or whatever it's going to say, or I would like to have um, more free time, or anything. But if you examine it, in the end it comes down to one thing only, I want to get rid of my dukkha. And whichever way I think my dukkha is arriving, I want to get rid of it. And if you believe the Buddha, then the only thing left on the list is Nibbana. And if that's the case, let's have a look what the seven factors of enlightenment can do for us. The seven factors of enlightenment, Bo Janga, Bo is the syllable for enlightenment, Bo or Bu, same thing, Buddha, Bo tree, it's always the syllable for enlightenment in Pali. And Janga are limbs, like arms and legs. So there are the seven limbs of enlightenment. Pride of place takes mindfulness. It's at the top of the list. It's the first one. Now the first one on these lists doesn't mean that the others are less important. But it does mean something. 
It means without it, there's no entry. That's the doorway. And that doorway of mindfulness should not be underestimated. It has all the applications we need in daily life. Now let's have another look at what mindfulness really is and can do for us. It has four foundations, four bases, four possibilities, four focuses. First one is body. Kaya Nupasana, Kaya's body. Mindfulness of the body. Okay, that is apparently the, more, the easiest one. But the Buddha also said it is extremely important who does not understand the body does not have an entry into the deathless. Because naturally, instinctively, we identify with this body. Now, intellectually, we all know that we couldn't possibly be this body. We've got to be more than that. But emotionally, we identify with it. We look in the mirror and we say, oh, yes, that's me. I mean, who else? It's not you. It's got to be me. We're standing in front of the mirror. We're looking at this. Oh, my robes, huh? Or, um, oh, I'm not looking very well. I better do something for myself. Or something like that. This body, me. Mindfulness has the mundane application and the spiritual application. The mundane application means that we watch what we're doing. Watching what we're doing has the aspect of not using the body in a wrong way, not breaking any precepts with the body, not hurting anyone with the body. That's a mundane application. And also the mindfulness of the body helps us to do things harmoniously, easily, efficiently. It helps in every aspect of mundane life. Knowing that what this body is all about, we can also limit its activity to its essentials. Very often, because of our innate restlessness, we use the body without purpose. So mindfulness watches out of all that, but it has a spiritual application. The word mindfulness as such gives an inkling of that. Mind is full of what's actually happening. So when we stay with the attention on our own body, we become aware of its real nature, the real nature of having to be changing constantly. Even in deep sleep, the body is moving because it's having dukkha. The mind is not aware of it. When we wake up in the morning, we have no idea how many times we've turned around. But subconsciously, it is aware of the pain in the body 
and it keeps on moving. And the movement which we experience because of the dukkha is also the movement of the impermanence in the body. Everything has to move, otherwise we're dead. It is an important aspect of this body. Constant movement. And who knows it? The mind. So we enter again into the first insight of the knower and the known. The mind is the knower. And it means introspection, it means going inside. We can find everything inside. All that is out there, it's exactly the same as what's in here. So the spiritual aspect, transcending the mundane uh, utilitarian aspect of mindfulness, is the understanding of the body as not something solid, depending upon the elements, but something that has a nature of constant movement, never one moment still. That has to be experienced. We can know it intellectually, but we can experience it also by watching it. And then we can also know from that that it's a mind, nama, the nema, that knows. The body knows nothing. If you have a body lying here without a mind in it, you can hack it to bits and it won't object. It's just bones, flesh, blood, guts, and all the rest of it. 32 parts. But put a mind in it and you've got a totally different situation. Now this is very important as an entry, not only into the mindfulness aspect of living, but also into the inside aspect. So mindfulness has the quality of helping us to live more easily and more harmoniously, but it has the quality of giving us a spiritual insight. Body, next thing that we can watch are feelings. Second base of mindfulness are feelings. And in this case, we talk about emotions that arise. And if we have a visual mind, sometimes these emotions actually arise as pictures. If we have a verbal mind, they might arise as a story. But primarily, we've got to get to our feelings. We mustn't run around with the head cut off here and the rest just walking with it. It is absolutely essential for anyone, whether they live a practice life or not, to be in touch with their emotions, because this is where it's all happening. The emotions are our takeoff point. If you remember, when I was talking about the mundane depend origination, I was saying that the doorway out is from our feelings to the next step, the craving, the wanting or the not wanting. And in all aspects, 
of the meditative procedure, we have to get in touch with our feelings. Otherwise, the meditation remains a head trip, and surely that's not what meditation is all about. And life has to be experienced, not thought about. We try to. We try to think about it. But that means past and future. Because the present, this moment, has to be an experience. And that only possible with feeling. And not only all that, but we constantly react to our feelings. Whether we are aware of it or not makes no difference. Because our feelings are that which are resulting from all our contacts. So whatever the mind contacts through the senses, the outer senses of life, or the thinking results in feeling. And whatever we know about it, it doesn't matter whether we do or not, that's our reaction. And when we don't know about it, our reactions are going to be very often unwholesome, hurtful for ourselves and others. And particularly, if we don't know what's going on, we can't change it. So the formula is recognition, no blame, change. And that formula is something that one can actually say to oneself when things seem to get dark inside, heavy, of a feeling of um, depression or dislike or a feeling of uh, unhappiness arises. We don't have to stay with those feelings. They aren't a given. They aren't something that is uh, a necessary um, happening. They're only something that we have allowed to arise in our mind. That's all. We don't have to allow it. We don't have to be the victim of our emotions. As long as we're a victim of our emotions, we're not living properly. Only when we become master of the emotion, then we have a chance to live the way we want to. Now, obviously, that's an ideal situation, to be master of it. But from victim to master, there are steps to be taken. We don't have to be either the one, nor can we hope to be immediately the other. But the steps on the way are the recognition and the understanding that there's no blame attached to it, but change is possible. We don't have to keep on uh, uh, using the reaction to the feeling that we have in the past. Our reactions, if we haven't gotten insight into them, are more or less pre-programmed. We have been responding to the same triggers in the same way, over and over again. And sometimes we can even recognize it. Somebody says something, 
It's totally innocuous. It has absolutely no sting in it. And we react badly. And five minutes later, we realize the person looks like somebody that we used to react badly to. And so, although that this new person hasn't said anything, we're again re reacting badly. It's, there's a program running in there. And that program has to be recognized. Because the sight contact at that moment has produced an unpleasant feeling. And so we're reacting to that unpleasant feeling which the sight contact has produced. And other times we're reacting to the unpleasant feeling that the sound contact has produced. Maybe somebody is saying something and it sounds to us terrible. And maybe 10 minutes later we can realize that it sounded as authoritative as a teacher in school used to be, or something like that. As a matter of fact, it had nothing to do with it. It's probably perfectly um, legitimate what was being said. But our program makes us respond like that. We've got to get, become aware of that, which means that we get in touch with our feelings and realize them for what they are. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neutral. But the reaction doesn't have to be immediate, impulsive, instinctive. But when it comes up, and it will come up first, we can look at it and with mindfulness put the brake on and say, this one is not going to be wholesome. <laughs> this one isn't going to work properly. I'm going to substitute. Substitution is much easier than just dropping. Although dropping is the eventual a way of getting rid of clinging. It's a letting go aspect. In the beginning, substitution is a necessary action. So if there is a dislike arising for someone or something because of some trigger which came, the first recognition has to be that the trigger is outside and the dislike is inside. So what am I going to deal with? Am I going to deal with the trigger? Am I going to deal with what's inside? If I have any sense, I'm going to deal with what's inside because triggers are so multitudinous in this world that it's impossible to get rid of them. There's no way we can ever get rid of the triggers. So it's better to deal with this that's happening inside. So when that was happening inside gets into the wholesome aspect of dislike, rejection, resistance, anger, jealousy, envy, pride, greed, craving, whatever it may be, any of them, we can, with mindfulness, take a moment's time to look at it and to realize I'm recognizing it for what it is. I don't have to continue with it. I can substitute it with either some compassion, some idea of um, it's not important, some idea of impermanence, some idea of substancelessness, particularly with anger, which makes life so very unpleasant for oneself and others. There are so many ways 
of dealing with that. One thing is, when one gets angry at a person, one can think first of all, what am I getting angry at? At the hair or the nose or the, the eyes or what am I getting angry at? Or am I getting angry at the speech? Well, what is the speech? The speech may be unpleasant, I don't like it, but that means that the other person, if it's really unpleasant speech, is unhappy. So why should I get angry? Why can't I get compassionate? If one can change one's anger to compassion, one's, first of all, oneself's going to feel good, the other person's going to feel good, and one has made a step forward on one's spiritual path. If one lets go with the anger, one is right where one started from. One hasn't made a step forward yet. If one does let go with the anger, not to blame oneself. Because anger is already unwholesome, and blame is also unwholesome. So instead of having one unwholesome action, we get two. That doesn't work at all. If we blame ourselves, we're usually apt to blame others. Recognition of it, realizing this one got away, we'll try the next one. That's all that's possible. There are going to be many that will get away, not just anger, also greed. Many that will get away from one until one has reached arahantship. What does it matter? We've been doing it for lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. This time, maybe, the first time or second time or third time that we're becoming aware of it. We've been doing it all along. The difference is that now we're aware of it, what we're doing. And this is a significant difference. That makes all the difference. <coughs> so with that difference of awareness, we don't have to hand out any blame to anyone for anything. All we have to do is be aware. And then make a determination which in the uh, teaching of the Buddha, determination is one of the ten paramis or paramitas, aditana. It is an important uh, virtue in oneself to have that determination. Well, next time I'll watch better. That's all. And then maybe next time one really watches better. But the entry into this kind of practice the first step is that one realizes what is the trigger and what is the reaction. It isn't the trigger that is at fault. If somebody is nasty, well, that's their problem, isn't it? But if I'm responding to it, that's my problem. There's a lovely story of how the Buddha dealt with this sort of thing. And I think it is worthwhile to know that story because it's a good one to remember when oneself is in that same situation. And you can see that the Buddha got into this situation just as we do. The Buddha was give a, giving a discourse. And you may know that the Brahmins of India were mostly his enemies. They are the priest caste. And the Buddha was a reformer. He was saying that it isn't the priests that are going to get you to your salvation. It isn't pouring ghee and the milk 
over the stone gods that's going to get you to your salvation. You have to do it yourself. So since he had quite a lot of disciples, some of the Brahmins' income was dwindling because they were getting money for this type of thing. It was their job. And so he had a lot of detractors amongst the Brahmins who were in that uh, priest uh, had, as a job. So one of the Brahmins was uh, present at this particular discourse. And while the Buddha was talking, he got up and walked back and front, back and forth in front of him, which in itself is, of course, extremely impolite when somebody is talking. And, uh, and then when the Buddha made a pause, he started abusing the Buddha. He said that the Buddha was preaching a wrong doctrine. He should be chased out of the country. He was uh, uh, inducing men and boys to leave the farms and the families to become monks. And he was a separator of families. And uh, his doctrine was um, vile and he was using also very bad language. And the Buddha was sitting there patiently waiting for him to get finished. Well, after a while, he ran out of words and he stopped. And then the Buddha said to him, Brahman, do you sometimes have guests in your house? And the Brahman said, yes, of course I have guests in my house. And the Buddha said, and when you have guests in your house, do you offer them hospitality? Do you offer them food and drink? And the Brahman said, well, of course I do. Of course I offer them food and drink. And the Buddha said, and if they don't accept your food and drink, to whom does it belong? The Brahmin said, well, it belongs to me, of course, to me. The Buddha said, that's right, Brahmin, belongs to you. So what the Brahmin was pouring forth as abuse to the Buddha, the Buddha didn't pick it up. It still belonged to the Brahmin. If we can remember that story, and it takes a little while to practice that but I can assure you it works and there is nobody in the world including the Buddha who doesn't get into such situations it doesn't have to be uh, immediately vile abuse but it's usually something that's directed against one the minute one doesn't pick it up it belongs to the one who's sending it out and that means we have learned to differentiate between the trigger and our own reaction. And that is the only thing that counts, our own reaction. We can't do anything about the triggers. The world's full of them. And we're never going to change the triggers unless we have changed first. Having changed first into a, a person that may be able to have loving kindness and compassion, the triggers which are near one may have some of that also, find some of that in their own hearts, because it is contagious. But how much contagious it is depends on how open the heart is. The main thing is to know that only one's own reaction counts. So to get in touch with this feeling inside May it be of any kind, particularly if it's unwholesome, means that we have the ability to change it into something wholesome. Another thing that we can do when somebody is um, making us angry, um, 
is to realize that that same person, if we know him or her, has already said something at another time which was very nice or done something that was very nice. So we can remember the good things about that person instead of all that which is just coming to mind. We mustn't allow our minds to have the negative track because the more solid we go along that track, the more embedded it becomes in the mind. There is no need to do that because it doesn't impair our discriminating qualities. We still know what's good and what's bad, otherwise we can't keep the precepts. But they are our own way of keeping them. It's not somebody else's precepts we're keeping for them. So as we realize a person is making us angry and that anger only burns us ourselves, hurts us ourselves, we can remember anything good or nice that ever happened with that person. If we can't that do that, we can realize that if a person is unpleasant, it means that they themselves are unhappy. And if none of that has helped, we can also realize that some other people might love that person. It's our own reaction to it. They might think that person is wonderful. We just don't see that aspect. So maybe we can look in a different way. Anything to change the reaction to a wholesome one. If there is love and compassion in the heart, then we can realize that as a wholesome uh, reaction. And the Buddha also said something about speech, which is also something that we need to put our mindfulness on. Although it isn't one of the four foundations, the four foundations are the body, the feeling, the thought and the thought content. The speech is a direct um, follow-up of the thought content. We can't say what we're not thinking. So he had a lot to say about speech. Obviously, one of the, uh, the fourth precepts is about speech. But he gave a very interesting discourse uh, about um, speech. And in it, he gave a formula how to speak and when to speak to other people. And it is a formula well worth remembering, although we won't always be able to follow it. If we have at least that kind of guideline, it gives us something uh, to uh, hang on to. He said, if we know something that may be hurtful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know something that is, can be helpful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know something that is hurtful and true, don't say it. And if you know something that can be helpful and is true, find the right time. Which means no impetuous, instinctive, impulsive talk. Particularly, of course, when it concerns a weighty matter. That means if we want to tell somebody something of importance, we can first figure out, is it true? Yes. Is it, could it be hurtful? Well, yes. Let's forget it. Well, helpful, necessary, all right. 
then the right time has to be found. The right time means the other person and oneself both are at ease and have the time to discuss something. Secondly, oneself has nothing but love and compassion in one's heart for the person that one is talking to. If there's a slightest bit of anger, it's not going to make any impact anyway. The person is either not going to hear it or it's going to um, just arouse return anger. So when we want to say something that's supposed to be helpful and can be helpful and may not be something that is uh, appreciative, approving and uh, praising, but just straight out helpful within the Dhamma, then the right time is when we ourselves are ready for that. Sometimes we're caught unawares, naturally. Mindfulness is the only thing that helps. We're caught unawares, all right? Stop. Take a deep breath and think about it. That's all we can do. A deep breath does help. The uh, way we talk does not only have words in it, as we very well know. The words are the concepts, but we don't live with concepts. We also talk with body language, with facial expression, and with tone of voice. And all that makes up the whole of the speech. I was talking to a speech therapist once, and she told me that within their investigations had shown that the words in our speech make up 7% of the communication. 93% is nonverbal. So we have to make sure how we feel before we say something of a weighty matter or even of a non-weighty matter. We can say good morning to somebody and he knows we, that uh, that person hates us. <laughs> but we can say to somebody, you're an idiot and we can have made an enemy for life. But we can also say to somebody, you know, you're really an idiot. And that person knows that we really feel for him and uh, that we really would like to help. And they're exactly the same words, but it's an entirely different feeling behind it. So we have to make sure how we feel before we discuss. And that sometimes takes time. It can take one or two days if there is an important matter. It might take one or two days till one gets oneself to the point where one really loves that person again. That's all right. We've been around so many lifetimes. What's one or two days? There's no hurry about that. So, mindfulness of feeling. We could say that it may be the most important aspect of our inner life because our inner life depends upon our feelings and if our inner life is smooth and harmonious our outer life will definitely be the same 
naturally we can't always be like that but if we have a grip on the situation if we know where to enter and do something about it at least we know what is possible and once having done it once having had anger arise and being able to change it into compassion gives so much self-confidence that one can always do it even though it may not be true but the self-confidence is there that that again gives new impetus to that practice knowing one has done it the next uh, mindfulness uh, base are our thoughts the process of our thinking we have to be able to know what's thinking and what's experiencing and we have to know what's thinking and what's feeling we have to be able to differentiate because when it is an experience that is something that there's no doubt about it that's happening but if it's a thought can be manipulated any which way so if we are thinking we're aware of our thinking we can become aware of discursive thinking we can become aware of um, uh, directional thinking like in the contemplation and we can become aware of uh, the um, uh, thinking which is um, trying to get away from things in other in start instead of getting in touch with one's feelings <coughs> trying to find an escape route and that escape route is very often thinking and if we don't realize it we might even think it's valuable but as a matter of fact of fact the um, thinking is actually dukkha because it's done constantly moving it's irritate irritating and it usually produces that kind of thinking absolutely no result the only way that our thinking is useful is if it is an understood experience which means that we first feel it and then know it and the fourth foundation is the content of thought and there the buddha again gave a very uh, distinct formula of how to deal with one's thoughts he said if you have if you know or if you have an unwholesome thought that has not yet arisen do not allow it to arise if there is an unwholesome thought which has already arisen do not continue it if there is a wholesome thought which has not yet arisen make it arise if there's a wholesome thought which has already arisen make it continue make it to continue so this is called the four supreme efforts they're supreme because they are first of all very very um supreme results from it but also because it's supremely difficult <laughs> one needs strong mindfulness and meditation is supposed to 
make this mindfulness arise and show us how to keep it going. That means that we have actually an automatic introspection into ourselves, that we don't allow just things to happen nilly-willy, but that we watch ourselves, what's going on here inside of us. So when we can see, now when we become very mindful, the first one's very difficult, when, as far as mindfulness is concerned, when we become very mindful, we can realize that an unwholesome thought is preceded by an unpleasant feeling. There comes a feeling of heaviness, sometimes a feeling of uh, fogginess, sometimes a feeling of anxiety, sometimes a feeling of um, just irritation. It's just a slight, subtle feeling which arises. And when, when that has arisen, the unwholesome thought is in the offing. It's just moving on. It's just throwing, throwing its shadow ahead that I'm coming, watch out. And if one doesn't watch out, one can easily even go into depression from that, if one has no counteraction at all. If one doesn't do that, one can lose energy very easily because un unwholesome thought is an energy consumer. It's a consumer of energy without any... Um, feedback, nothing get, we get nothing back from it. So we can, well, again we are thrown back on watching our feelings because when we have that um, ability to see how this is arising, we won't allow the unwholesome thought. We know the feeling, there's an unwholesome thought in the offing, so immediately we'll put a wholesome thought in. Something about loving uh, other people, about being appreciative of oneself, um, having compassion for one's own dukkha, other people's dukkha, having some joy with if we know anything good that has happened to anyone, uh, maybe even if we are able to arouse equanimity. That's the most difficult one. But loving kindness, compassion, joy with others, these are the three that are the uh, counter-indications for all unwholesome thinking. We can escape from it by trying to um, immerse ourselves into some uh, study or a book. Anything is better than an unwholesome thought. I felt during meditation itself. When unwholesome thought arises? When a cloud coming. Right. Uh, when you're supposed to be watching the breath. Yeah, but you're <laughs> watching the breath and you can still feel the cloud coming. Right. You can't label it yet because it's, it's, just, it's not formed, but you know it all. Right. Well, the, uh, there the substitution in the meditation is always getting back to the breath. You see, because once you know there's the cloud, you've gone off the breath to the cloud. Right? So it is always getting back to the breath. That's a substitution. In living, the substitution is the unwholesomeness with the wholesomeness. But it's the same act, action of substitution, same thing. It's deliberate. You can't sort of sit there and hope it for it to happen. It's a deliberate change of mind. 
we all have said at least uh, many times in our lives, oh, I've changed my mind. Well, this is it. We change our mind, that's all. Deliberately. So when an unwholesome thought has already taken uh, its uh, place here in the mind and has become full-blown, we have to recognize it for what it is, that it is a detriment to our own happiness and substitute with something else. Now sometimes, if one is not practiced, that may take time. One may sit with this thing and try to put something else in and it won't happen, which means clinging. It means nothing else but clinging. It doesn't mean the unwholesome thought is justified. It's never justified. It just is. But not being able to substitute means hanging on to it. In the beginning, that happens very often. Recognition, no blame, change. Nothing to blame oneself for. Things are as they are. But we are, as human beings, able to change our own inner attitude. Otherwise, if that were not so, enlightenment would be impossible. But seeing it is so, enlightenment is possible. We can change. So when we have this unho the uh, unwholesome thought, we can substitute with a wholesome one, the quicker the better. And the more often we do it, the quicker it works, and the more self-confidence we have that it is possible to do it. And we no longer believe those thoughts. Now, anyone who meditates... Mm -hmm. Often it seems when you do that, it um, even becomes just effort. It often leaves a little residue behind it that uh, leaves you super well then the it's not a clean cut huh? well I would say that the substitution has taken place only superficially and not in depth the uh, unpleasantness uh, which was there still keeps coming because it hasn't been uprooted it has sort of been covered over we may even be able sometimes to substitute and be quite uh, free of that unwholesomeness and two hours later it comes back, the same one. Mm -hmm. Just have to do it again. It's a, it's a matter of uh, uh, redoing the same thing. Whether it's the same unwholesome thought or a different one really doesn't matter. It just requires the same action of substitution. And when it comes back the second time, it's usually not quite as strong as the first time. And the third time, it's even less strong. And at that time, we may be also uh, not so involved with it and have an, a possibility to recognize why it is arising. Now, the recognition is like a questionnaire that we can give to ourselves. Why is this happening? Oh, it's because he's so nasty. Well, obviously, that's no answer. So then we can inquire again, well, why should it make me angry that he's so nasty? And then we can inquire again. The bottom line is always ego. But it's no use just saying, oh, it's my ego and forgetting about it. We have to get from A to Z. We have to start at the first uh, answer, which says, well, I'm angry because he's nasty. But then to inquire again into that answer, 
and then into the next answer, into the next answer, until we get down to the bottom line. That may take a little while, but it's worth it. Because the more often we do it, the less obnoxious it becomes for oneself. So the, the thought process is um, actually very much like our reaction to feeling. We don't allow the unwholesomeness to remain. We put in the wholesomeness. And when there is no wholesome thought within us, we make one arise. We, we see something, we say something appreciative to somebody, or we uh, have a feeling of um, um, that now we could do something for somebody, and uh, whatever it may be, we make a wholesome thought arise. And if it's there, we keep it. So the whole aspect of that procedure of our thinking content is to change from that which is negative to the positive and the same with our reaction to our feelings to change from that which is negative to that which is positive and never to be fooled by the trigger these triggers are there for one reason only they are there to show us what we have to learn so, as a matter of fact, we should have a feeling of gratitude when there are difficulties that we have to cope with and that we can't escape from. Because our natural inclination is to escape from difficulties, to move when it hurts. And that movement when it hurts overshadows the reality of Dukkha. So our movement away does never does us never any good for us. It just brings up a new dukkha somewhere else. So when there is some trigger outside of us which brings up this uh, negativity in us, we should be grateful because it is a learning situation. And if we can see that our whole life is nothing but an adult education class, then we've got the right attitude. If we are looking at it as if it was supposed to give us pleasure and comfort, we've got, we've got it all wrong. It's never going to do it. Oh, there are some pleasures, naturally. We're going to have a picnic tomorrow. I mean, it's pleasurable. But uh, it's also going to last only a short time. <laughs> and uh, so um, we do have them. And that's good that we have them. Because any realm below us doesn't have these pleasures and comforts. But that's not what life's all about. Life's an adult education class. So whenever some teacher comes along, teacher meaning an outer trigger that's making us respond, that is a matter of gratitude for us. And not saying, oh, I can't stand it here, I'm going out, this is terrible. On the contrary, this is great. They're showing me all my deficiencies. How wonderful. Now I can really do something. I've got it all laid out in front of me. Now I can work at it one by one by one. Well, it takes a bit of um, heavy-duty mind stuff to do that, but that's what one needs. So we have the mindfulness that is the first and foremost aspect of our um, practice in daily living. It is also the first aspect of the seven factors of enlightenment. But there is something connected with mindfulness. And that's clear comprehension. The Buddha talks about these two together. 
sati and sampanyanya. Sati is the mindfulness and sampanyanya is the clear comprehension. Now mindfulness is the one that knows, but clear comprehension is the one that understands. Now if you want to go and uh, break into a bank and rob a bank, you've got to be pretty mindful. Otherwise, the police is going to get you immediately. So mindfulness knows exactly what you're doing, but you haven't got any clear comprehension. Because clear comprehension has four aspects, and the first one is, what's the purpose of my thought, my speech, or my action? What is the purpose? So first we look at the purpose. Obviously that's going to slow us down, which is great. We're far too much in a hurry anyway. To be slowed down in all that we are and do is very valuable. After we have ascertained that the purpose is wholesome, we go to the next step, whether what we're going to, what we have in mind, are skillful means whether they are skillful means to accomplish this particular purpose. And the third step is whether these skillful means are within the Dhamma. There is no end that ever excuses the means. Means are never excusable because the end is supposed to be good. The means also have to be skillful within the Dhamma. And within the Dhamma means, is it wholesome? Would it be according to what the Buddha said? And after having checked out all three, then to go ahead. If the purpose is one that we ourselves think is a good one, if the means that we're trying to use are the most skillful ones that we can uh, think of, and if the whole thing is within the Dhamma. And then, having finished it, whatever it is, speech or action, or even thought, to see whether the purpose has been accomplished. And if not, why not? And if not, if it hasn't been accomplished, the answer is the means were not skillful enough. Perfectly right. There's no uh, reason why from the very onset of our practice, we should know all the most skillful means, but we need to learn from our experiences. So here, if the means were not skillful enough because the purpose was not accomplished, maybe we can find more skillful means next time. So mindfulness knows what's going on, but the clear comprehension understands it and is able to discriminate between that which is within the Dhamma and that which is not. So it is actually the mindfulness which knows that the thought has arisen and the clear comprehension that knows whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. Now we also have to remember, and this is important, that mind is the master. The first verse of the Dhammapada Mind is the master. If one thinks with an unwholesome mind, unhappiness will follow one, like the wheel follows the hoof of the ox. If one thinks with a wholesome mind, happiness will follow one, 
like one's own shadow. So we have to remember that thought is the first and foremost that brings us to speech and action. And that thought is also dependent on and reacting to feeling. So we can never let go of watching feeling, reaction, and thought. So when we do that, when we watch that, we have a good chance of having speech and action in harmony, and a good chance of being in harmony with ourselves and with others. And life then is an easier way of coping with it. It's still going to have all its dukkha, but it is easier to cope with because we can see the um, arising of it all and we do not have to react in a manner which is going to bring us or others grief. And if we bring grief to ourselves, we usually bring grief to others also. Mindfulness, pride of place in daily living with clear comprehension. And the next one of the seven factors of enlightenment is the investigation of Dhamma. Now there is a possibility of looking at this in two ways. The investigation of Dhamma means in the first place knowing the teaching, but not just the words, but the meaning. And there's another verse in the Dhammapada, far better to know one single line that one can actually manifest than knowing a thousand useless lines. So knowing one teaching and being able to live it is far more useful than knowing a lot and not being able to live any of it. So the emphasis is on investigating the Dhamma in such a way that one understands it and makes it one's own, which is the arousing of wisdom. The arousing of wisdom has three phases. The first phase is knowledge, information. We get some information. And in this case, we get the information of the Dhamma. The second phase is the remembering of it. Without remembering, it's gone with the wind. When we have remembered it, <coughs> then comes the third phase. And that is trying to actualize that, what we have remembered, to do it. We will find that knowing and remembering is child's play compared to doing it. And what we know and remember will be infinitely greater than what we're able to do. But even one step doesn't matter. The journey of a thousand miles starts with once the first step. So here, when we investigate the Dhamma, it means that we investigate it to the point is how am I going to actualize that particular sentence, that chapter. It is 
always useful when we read books of the Dhamma to read one page at a time and then try to digest that page to the point of remembering and then try to practice it and not getting back to the second page until one has actually practiced that first page or possibly chapter if there's not so much on a page. The Dhamma book should never be read like we read a novel. There's no beginning and end in it. There are all instructions on how to do it. <coughs> so that's the investigation of Dhamma in one way. But there's a second meaning to this. Because the word Dhamma, again, in Pali, has many, many meanings. And it means also phenomena. In one way it means the teaching. In one way it means phenomena. So the investigation of phenomena means that we investigate whatever we know as being anicca dukkhanatta, impermanent, unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactory, and coolness. And everybody finds that they prefer one of the three, that they like to investigate one more than the other. That's fine. They should take their preference. They should take either impermanence or dukkha or substancelessness or corelessness, non-self. Either one, doesn't matter, because they all lead to the same thing, to the real wisdom. So it has both meanings, the second step on the seven factors of enlightenment. And the third step is energy. And energy is, tw is of two, two things, physical and mental. And mental, it actually means one's volition and determination. And the physical follows that. The physical has the aspect of being very much um, influenced by that mental volition. So if one's mental energy is one-pointed and we know exactly what we want and where we're going, we will find that the physical energy will be enhanced. Naturally, everybody has their own physical liabilities, which some have more and others have less, but the mental energy is the one that helps. If we have a one-pointed direction and know that all the obstacles on the way are either of our own making now or karmic residue, then we will not let them deter us. If they're of our own making now, it's very easy to change. If they're karmic residue, they're also ceasing. All that's karmic residue, once it has arisen, ceases again. Nothing to worry about. And these obstacles that all of us have, there's nobody immune from that, are nothing but a challenge. They're a challenge to uh, arouse more energy. It is interesting that energy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It means that without it, we won't be able to practice. If we, however, let ourselves go too much, we won't be able to do anything. But if we tighten up too much, we can also get too tense. So energy which produces effort, which is the... Um, 
sixth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, Samavayama, right effort, is produced by energy and it's got to be balanced effort. The balancing of the effort is the only oneself can do. It's like walking a tightrope. If we tighten too much, we fall down one side. If we let go too much, we fall down the other side. We just have to keep in balance. And keeping in balance has to be done by oneself. Nobody can tell us. If we realize that our um, strength is being depleted to the point where we can no longer focus, we know we've done too much. If we realize that we haven't done anything because we were looking for comfort and pleasure, we know we haven't done enough. And then we have to find the middle way. Got to find always that balance again. The next four of the seven factors of enlightenment are the first four jhanas the first four meditative absorptions and starts out with piti starts out with the rapture so we see again that we have to in their progressive order get our mindfulness together which also happens through meditation but also through daily living that we need to investigate the teaching and the phenomena around us and within us and that we have to arouse energy and then get into the meditative process of the absorptions. They're all four ending with equanimity. Now equanimity is a feature of the fourth jhana, but it is also, as I told last night, a feature of being on the verge of being able to jump across to the other bank. It is the equanimity about all formations, the equanimity about everything that exists. Now that can only come after insight has become very much established. The equanimity which arises in the meditative absorptions is of course a help, but it isn't the real thing yet because it is again impermanent and ceases when the meditative absorption ceases. But the equanimity about all formations which arises from insight, which is the necessary aspect before we can let go, if you remember that it was neither having any revulsion for worldly aspects nor any attraction, but having total dispassion that is the resultant of the whole of the insight path. And that is the seventh factor of the seven factors of enlightenment. And all these factors are inherent in us. We all have some mindfulness, we all have some energy, we all have investigated some Dhamma, we all have done some meditation, whether we have got absorption or not, but certainly there has been some Peacefulness. Peacefulness is actually the mentioning of the next factor after uh, rapture. It's not called joy in this progression. It's called peacefulness. The next one's called concentration and the last one, equanimity. 
they are all factors of which we have the the uh, potential within and some of it have already been aroused but they only become factors of enlightenment when they have been perfected to the point where we can use them to make this enormous jump after that first jump the perfection of them is not steady that only becomes steady for the arahant so that is also something that one needs to remember as one progresses on the path now these seven factors of enlightenment are within our capacity of daily living if we practice meditation and practice the study and the understanding of the dhamma and they will give us a guideline a direction for our life most people's lives in the ordinary marketplace are diffuse and uh, have a great deal of um, unnecessary action in it here we also have to watch that we do not dissipate our energy unnecessarily now as far as mental and physical energy is concerned everybody has only a certain amount it increases the better the meditation becomes but we can only deal with what we have right now so there also we need mindfulness not to dissipate this energy unnecessarily we need to conserve it for what is most important and the most important thing is up to us to decide up to each one to decide in our daily life having this direction will be extremely helpful because it will keep us sort of um, contained the world has too many possibilities and being contained within a certain direction helps us also to conserve our energy for that certain direction there's one other thing which is helpful for daily living one time ananda said to the buddha sir a good friend is half of the holy life and the buddha said do not say so ananda a good friend is the whole of the holy life a good friend in pali is called a karyana mitta a karyana mitta is considered to be a good spiritual friend in the first instance the uh, commentary says that a good spiritual friend is a meditation teacher but however whether that is a meditation teacher or not a good spiritual friend is someone who will help one to stay on the path with whom one can discuss the difficulties where one is sure of gaining um, of getting uh, compassionate answers and where one feels supported this support system on the spiritual path is of extreme importance and very often lacking i have seen it many times although people live together and although people practice together a certain 
almost one-upmanship arises in the practice where there is not that support system available of having this spiritual friend who is ready to help. Now, of course, a spiritual friend who is really valuable is one who's already gone at least one step ahead so that he already knows where the next step is. And this is what we usually compare to a um, mountain guide. You want to climb a mountain. This uh, path can be compared to a climbing a mountain where we don't really know exactly what uh, the next step looks like. And we don't certainly don't know what the mountain top looks like. We've only heard that it's very beautiful, wonderful, everybody's happy there, and uh, it's the place to go. But uh, if we have a guide who's been already up and down that mountain, it's a wonderful help because such a guide can help us to avoid pitfalls, can help us to avoid falling into a ditch or um, uh, stepping on uh, rolling stones and also of getting off the path. There are many possibilities for getting off the path, although one thinks one is still on it. So the Kalyanamitta, the good friend, the good spiritual friend, is a very important person. The Buddha said he's the whole of the holy life. And if you remember, I talked about the five hindrances, which are temporarily eliminated through the five factors of the first absorption. Now these five hindrances that are uh, our lot, everybody's uh, lot, have antidotes, particular antidotes, but they all have one antidote in common, and that's noble friends and noble conversations. That's for all five of them. So you can see the importance placed by the Buddha on friends, and here also on conversations. And this is something maybe of importance for our daily living because our conversations are the food for the mind. Our thinking is food for the mind. Our conversations are books. And if we have any uh, contact with the media, this is food for the mind. Conversations are an important aspect of food for the mind. Now, we would never touch any food on our plates that looks either dirty or poisonous. We wouldn't dream of it. We'd throw it in the garbage bin immediately. But with the food for our mind, we're not that careful. And we should be more careful. So our conversations with our noble friends who are also on the path should be considered to be health food for the mind. <laughs> it's more important than brown sugar and brown rice. It doesn't necessarily mean that we only talk about the Dhamma, although that is helpful, because one can't go far wrong then, but it's impossible. When you live together, there are other things to talk about. But it means that the conversation remains in a, in a manner and in a tone and in a, a, a direction which we can always check out to be within the Dhamma. 
it doesn't it has to be about utilitarian matters naturally one does have to talk about daily affairs but the way and how one does and one also should realize that the more the conversation can turn to dhamma the more the conversation can turn to spiritual realities to um, realizations that oneself has had and may be helpful to others or difficulties that one finds on the path where someone else might be able to help the more that happens the more helpful the conversations will be so if the daily activities take um, a little less uh, a little less of the time of the conversation and the dhamma more that's very helpful and having noble friends around one means that we have those friends who have the same aspiration this is very very fortunate if one has such um, a, a group of people around one and uh, having a sangha is that kind of group the buddha established the sangha he established the sangha for monks and nuns and that must have been a particular reason for that not only because of greater discipline but particularly because of having one pointed direction aspiration that one pointed direction aspiration is the main aspect for being monk or nun the world does not have so much place then anymore in one's life it is the dhamma that takes pride of place so having good friends with which one can have noble conversations helps one to diminish or at least recognize and then trying to change the five hindrances the five hindrances the gratification of sensual desire ill will sloth and torpor restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt and when doubt arises in one energy dissipates and when ill will arises in one energy dissipates sloth and torpor of course is totally without energy so all five have this um, factor of dissipating energy in one they do more than that too but particularly dissipating energy and if one finds that one can't really arouse oneself to do that which one knows needs to be done one of those five factors has arisen one can look and see which one it is and then try to substitute i think i'll stop now and give you a chance to ask some questions because i think enough for one morning <laughs> Uh, you're talking about sloth and torpor during meditation or just during daily living well, during, daily. during daily living 
Uh, if there's loss and torpor during daily living, it's definitely due to ill will. You've got to substitute the ill will. You see, the loss and torpor itself has as its antidote given by the Buddha that one should give oneself a pep talk, namely that life's very short and very um, uh, uh, very uh, it's very unsure how long we're going to be here, but death is very certain. That's one way of looking at it. That one can only do everything that one wants to do in this moment, that there are no other moments. And um, that uh, it needs to, that one has to realize that the past is irrevocably gone and the future is just a concept, a hope. Okay, these are the antidotes for the uh, sloss and torpor. However, if it arrives, that is actually more or less for the meditation, also for daily living. But when it arises in daily living, it is due to the fact, almost invariably, that there is a resistance and a dislike of that which needs to be done. And then we have to counteract the ill will. So the ill will or dislike, whichever word one likes, uh, can be counteracted by uh, understanding things are as they are, by understanding that uh, only loving kindness in one's own heart for whatever it may be, may even be a cooking pot, uh, is the right attitude, everything else pulls oneself down. So the uh, counteraction is to see what it is in oneself that brings this about and substitute with, with the opposite. It's called substitution of opposites. It's a term. So when it's ill will, the opposite love and compassion and love and compassion for oneself the love and compassion for oneself that one is in this dukkha situation of existence which is universal and but that oneself does not have a monopoly on it it isn't anything personal nobody's being singled out for having dukkha everybody's got it and so being like that loving love and compassion for oneself and saying well yeah, I am in samsara, okay, that's the way it is. And then keep going. And realizing that there is a way out through the Dhamma. Is it, is it okay to sort of mentally pat oneself on the back if a wholesome thought or feeling arises? I mean, not, don't hang on to it, but just say, okay, that was sort of nice, I did that sort of... Certainly, certainly. Certainly it's all right to pat oneself on the back. Who's going to do it otherwise? <laughs> the more often the better <laughs> that doesn't mean to become self-satisfied and that danger hardly exists <laughs> I have a small question what are the two mental factors of, what are the two factors of mental energy relation and determination All right, what else? What, no question? I don't believe it. I'll just wait a moment, maybe something comes up. <laughs>
Well, ill will is just another expression for the word anger, for the word hate. Uh, it's just another expression. Uh, in the, the the Buddha used the different words on, when he made different sort of expositions, and uh, here he used well, hate is um, uh, dosa, and uh, ill will is biapada. So it's just a different word for the same emotion. As you can call it dislike, uh, resistance, rejection, uh, fear goes under it, fear belongs to it also, um, jealousy, envy, all these things go under, go under that top heading. They are really most of our, in, um, our negative emotions would fit under them. And it doesn't have to be violent hate. It can just be a, a rejection, a resistance, a dislike. Could that ever uh, be justified, that uh, emotion? <laughs> everybody tries. <laughs> You're speaking from everybody's heart. Everybody tries. <laughs> Everybody tries, but nobody succeeds. <laughs> because you see, the hate as such is a very, uh, the dislike, a very unpleasant emotion. And even though we justify it backwards, forwards, sideways, it still remains very unpleasant. And the one who suffers is the one who has the unpleasant emotion. He can justify it as long as he wants. And it doesn't do, it doesn't give any spiritual growth at all. The justification is what, what we usually do. But in order to grow spiritually, we have to do something else. So the understanding is that the trigger has come to arouse this emotion in oneself, which gives one the indication and understanding that this emotion has not been eradicated yet. It's still in there. It's one of the weeds growing in one's heart, and that one needs to do something about it. That's all. completely wrong statement it's synonymous yes you have you could say that I dislike this person but uh, I don't uh, wish them any ill I don't want them to fall down and break their neck I'm not that hateful uh, although I might prefer it if they did but I don't <laughs> want <them. laughs> But, but uh, essentially, I don't really want them to, 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 you know, to break a leg or anything, but uh, I just dislike them. But it's essentially the same thing. It's ill will towards that person. It is in the heart. There is a, there is a negative emotion. And they have all sorts of great gradations, these negative emotions. They can go as far as killing somebody. I mean, that's the, the biggest one. And it can go as far as... Uh, well, just not feeling so comfortable with that person. And that's maybe the smallest one. 
Hey, you were supposed to go there. Yes. Ah, substitution. Substitution. Same, just the same thing as substitution. And these are just the bookkeepers getting their books in order. <laughs> I hope you can read all that later. Yes, it certainly does. And if you are a, a scholarly type of person, which I don't think you are, uh, the Visuddhi mother will give you <laughs> enough to do for the next two or three years. It's that thick. And the language is extremely difficult. Um, it goes into the most minute detail. And you never know in the beginning when you read it what is important and what's not important. Because everything is explained in such detail. Uh, it's very interesting. It has a history of um, uh, Theravadan Buddhism in the front and uh, the history of the kings of Sri Lanka and all that. Very interesting in that respect, historical um, document. It's uh, 1200 years old. So it's, um, it was written by Buddha Gosa in Sri Lanka, uh, who was an Indian monk. And, uh, but it is, I consider it a reference work, that once you have experienced something in your meditation, you can actually open it up and find it explained in the Visuddhimagga. It can be a helpful thing instead of a teacher. If you don't have a living teacher around, which is much easier because you can understand the language better, but even in the Visuddhimagga, if you have experienced it, you will understand the language. But to read it, well, I have many students who do read it. I admire them. It's, uh, it's for people whose minds are very scholarly orientated. It's a, it's a, real, it's a real heavy, heavy thing to, to read. But as a reference work, it's excellent. And you can find things in there. You can find all the different characters of people, uh, types types of characters that people are and what this character does and that is very, very, very interesting. But it takes a lot, lot of, um, of pouring over. But scholarly people love it, absolutely adore it. I have friends who wouldn't, wouldn't have been on the path without it. I've never finished reading it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can get it from the Polytech Society in England. I think they have it. Yeah, it's quite, uh, quite expensive. Mm. But I think you can order it from Polytech. Anything else? Ah. <laughs> I 
told you that uh, in my early conversations with Trouble Nation, that he had said to let, let it be known that the vision of this place was to uh, that all the schools of Buddhism, as well as contemplative traditions of all religions, should be uh, welcome here to preserve their own traditions uh, purely so that they could be sharing and enriching of each other's traditions. In this way, undercutting sectarianism, undercutting um, uh, narrow views, chauvinism of any kind. And, uh, but without in any way um, uh, undercutting the purity 